What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Welcome back to this week's episode. However, today's my first solo performance as a gastroenterologist. AK Dad is caught up with his patients in clinics. So um, bear with me today as I navigate the awkwardness of talking to myself. But here we are. So I thought it was important to bring this topic up as I'm fairly certain you've come across a ton of beat the bloat talks and remedies. I mean, I even have an online course and one-to-one program called Beat the Bloat. But the purpose of today's episode is to help you navigate the world of bloat, understand what causes it, how to manage it, and most importantly, how to normalize it and when to worry. Firstly, and it's a fact of life, we bloat. We are not meant to be walking around with washboard abs all the time. The thing is, if you've struggled with your gut for a very, very long time, you find it very difficult to establish what is normal. So what is normal bloat? This is potentially a good starting point, is understanding what is normal versus what is worrisome, to start normalizing it. Now, one way I have my clients distinguish what a normal bloat is versus a worrisome one is by using the following guide. And I want you to use this scale. So from zero to 10, zero meaning no discomfort, and 10 meaning it's excruciatingly uncomfortable. I want you to start rating your level of discomfort. I want you to reassure yourself that if you score anywhere between zero to five, that tends to reflect normal processes of digestion and bloating as a result of either eating too fast, too much, or just a lot of fiber or fermentable foods. Now, if you score six to 10, and if that's how you note down your level of discomfort, it is worth looking into and asking help from yours truly, so a gut health dietitian or registered nutritionist. Now, conditions to seek help is when you rate your discomfort consistently over five. This is when I would suggest consulting a specialist if the discomfort is also accompanied by things like tummy pain that is not relieved when you do the D. So when you go to the loo or when you fought and let a few you know, gas away, as well as noticing any changes in your bowel movement. So if the chronic bloating is accompanied by things like diarrhea, constipation, a mix of both, These are the warning signs that I want you to head to your doctor and get them checked. Now, the funny thing is, despite bloating being one of the most frequent and bothersome complaints, we still don't fully understand the exact cause of bloating since it's not that straightforward. They are extensive and I go into a great detail in my upcoming book, The Gut Chronicles. It is coming out in May. So there you go, getting some shameless marketing out of the way. 
Um, I do cover the mechanics of bloating, but today though, I just wanted to give you a snapshot of the causes. So when we're looking at what they are, they can include anything from a food sensitivity or food intolerance, like lactose intolerance or fructose intolerance. It can be SIBO, so that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And this is when you have gut microbes or gut bacteria from your large intestine that end up migrating to your small intestine, and they actually should not be there. So there's an overgrowth of specific gut bugs in your small intestine, and bloating is one of the symptoms. Stress and anxiety are also known to cause bloating. And this is a very good example at describing this whole gut-brain axis or how your gut and your brain are communicating. Other causes can include things like abnormal gut reflexes, constipation, obstructions, and that's like a, a blockage in your gut, celiac disease, malignancies or cancers, and so on. Now, before you jump to any conclusions and any of these big scary causes, you know, cause any alarm, your doctor will run the necessary tests that make the most sense in line with your medical and symptom history. So I truly doubt that a case of the bloat is an intestinal obstruction or malignancy. The other thing that I want you to note is that the clinical relevance of bloating as a symptom is extremely variable. Now, if we had to look at the two most common causes of bloating, and perhaps, again, I don't know if I can prove that or if it's more anecdotal, but I could easily say that constipation and producing excess gas are the two most common causes. I do plan to dedicate a whole episode to constipation and discussing it with dad as well. But just to give you kind of a quick overview, many may think that defining constipation is pretty straightforward, but it is actually very complex and it has nothing to do with the old school thinking of going to the bathroom less frequently. Also, defining constipation is highly individualized. So if we had to look at the exact definition, it means having two or more of the following for more than 25% of your defecations. And these include things like straining, lumpy or hard stools, a sensation of incomplete evacuation. And what incomplete evacuation means, you just feel like you haven't had a satisfactory poo. You just feel like... There's, you know, we haven't fully emptied the tank. Then we've got sensation of anorectal obstruction or blockage. So you feel like there's a blockage down there around the anus. And then less than three bowel movements per week. So these tend to be sort of the, the symptoms, let's say the signs that are associated with bloating if you choose two or more. Now your management plan is going to include things like addressing the cause, obviously. So are we looking at a mechanical problem? Is there, you know, is there something wrong with the plumbing? Or is it more related to things like lifestyle and diet? So are we looking at a poor fiber intake, not drinking enough water or fluids, not moving frequently, and so on? So constipation is a very, very well-known common cause of bloating. The other common cause of bloating, which is producing excess gas. Now, to give you a little bit of a rundown of, you know, how we produce gas in our intestines. So gas end up there from two main sources, either the air we breathe and also our gut microbes breaking down and digesting food leftovers in the large intestine. Now, while it's totally normal to produce gas, so the, the whole, you know, production of gas is just a byproduct of your gut microbes fermenting food. 
It can be really embarrassing. It can sometimes be disruptive and cause uncomfortable bloating, pain, or discomfort. So for me, it's really important to sort of investigate are, you know, is excess gas a problem or is constipation the problem? Which one do we need to fix to address the bloat? So if we had to look at excess gas, if that's a problem, I want you to take these two sort of important points down. One, we need to control how much air we're swallowing. So from a behavioral perspective, what I want you to do is perhaps we need to chew food well with our mouth closed. Don't use a straw when you're drinking. Avoid chewing gum. Avoid fizzy drinks because that also ends up you swallowing a lot of gas. Sparkling water, that's another thing that goes out. And try not to overeat and stop when you reach the sensation of, I am satisfied. So one, trying to help you swallow less air. And then two, perhaps we need to temporarily limit foods that are known to cause gas. I think here is where you need to identify your own triggers. But the thing is, the goal is not about total elimination because a lot of these foods are actually considered healthy, but it's about strategically eating them in smaller amounts and not perhaps combining them together. So for example, these foods include things like onions and garlic, broccoli, and we've got artichokes, asparagus, lentils, apples and pears, cabbage, lentils, beans and chickpeas, and things like pear and pear juice. So If you start to notice that you, hold on, am I consuming a lot of these foods in large amounts, perhaps temporarily limiting them or not combining them all together and see if you end up producing less gas, less farts, causing less bloating. So this is where I think I really wanted to mention, you know, the two most common causes and just a a brief snapshot of how you need to address them. So we came up with constipation and we came up with producing excess gas. Now, How do we manage the uncomfortable bloat? Obviously, knowing the cause is key. As a gut health dietitian, this is where I just want to focus on the lifestyle and food side of things. And when it comes to the areas that we would be looking at, when it comes to management, we are always going to start with behaviors. I'm going to talk about that in a bit more detail. We're going to look at fiber. So how much fiber are you consuming? Is it too little, too much? But we just need to find that right sweet spot of how much fiber you need to eat. Artificial sweeteners. We'll look into lactose and then we'll look into FODMAPs. Kicking off with eating behaviors. Specific eating behaviors that I want you to be mindful of is how fast of an eater are you? If you're a fast eater, slow down. The target here is for you to aim for about 15 to 20 minutes to finish a meal. And that kind of ties into the next thing is like, chew your food. Make sure you chew, 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 because as the saying goes, digestion starts in your mouth. The other thing is avoid consuming larger meals and overeating. So sometimes having smaller, more frequent meals, such as three mains and one snack or three mains and two snacks might be better tolerated and not cause you to bloat. As I've mentioned previously, so things like your carbonated drinks, like your fizzy drinks, sparkling water, colas, all of these can contribute you to swallowing more air and then causing you to bloat. And perhaps something that you might have not thought about in great detail is your clothing. 
So one thing that I advise people to do who have been struggling with the bloat is to loosen up. So I know we've gone, I mean, myself included, but sort of skinny jeans and tight yoga pants have made their rounds and they're actually the worst choice for bloating. So wearing tight pants constricts your stomach due to all the extra pressure, making it more difficult for food and gas to move along. So as your tummy relaxes and contracts, tight clothing can make this pressure more noticeable and definitely unpleasant. So again, focus on behaviors first, correct these before jumping on any elimination bandwagon. The next thing that we need to assess if bloating is a problem and we want to manage it is fiber. Now we know that fiber is crucial for good gut health, but it is also a definite known trigger for bloating. And with the plant-based movement on the rise, and so many of my clients are and have made the switch to more plant-centered diet, a lot of them have complained of excessive uncomfortable bloating. So the reason here could be that they've probably had too much fiber too quickly. If you think about it, the average person consumes around, let's say, 15 to 20 grams of fiber. And if you've made the switch to a more plant-centered or plant-based diet or even become vegan, you can go up to 40 grams of fiber within a few days. And that's just way too much fermentation happening in such a short period of time. So this is where the bloating becomes extremely uncomfortable and very, very noticeable. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the term fiber, so fiber is just known as the backbone of all plant foods. And what happens is it passes you know, through our digestive system relatively unchanged until it reaches our large intestine. And this is where the microbes start to break it down. And the result of fermenting fiber is gas production. So this is where when you notice, all right, hold on, too much fiber is coming in, there's too much fermentation happening, that can cause the excessive bloat and can make things really uncomfortable. So my tips there would include, I want you to gradually increase your fiber over a four-week period. I have a detailed plan in my book on how to increase your fiber. So it's like my four-week plan to increasing your fiber intake over four weeks. But this is also just to sort of train your gut to tolerate more and more fiber as you go. The other important thing is that you need to make sure that you're drinking enough water to prevent constipation, which can really make the bloating worse. So I need you to make sure that fiber and fluid go hand in hand. The other tip would be to spread your fiber intake throughout the day. And actually for a lot of people who complain of bloating, cooked vegetables may be better tolerated than raw salad vegetables. So you can give that a go. All right, we've got fiber out of the way now. So we started off with eating behaviors. We've moved to fiber. And now I actually want to quickly talk about artificial sweeteners. Now, artificial sweeteners are becoming this essential additive within the food industry, especially if we're talking about diet foods and this craze when it comes to high-protein, low-carb food products. Now, the specific ones I wanted to mention here that are actually known to cause sort of the, that excessive uncomfortable bloat are sugar alcohols. And they include things like ersorbitol, mannitol, maltitol, erythritol, and xylitol. So think of, you know, the words that end in O-L. These sugar alcohols 
travel all the way down to your large intestine and they're poorly absorbed there. So consuming too much of them can cause bloating, stomach pain, gas, and even diarrhea. So this is why a lot of these foods can come with a warning that excessive consumption can actually have a laxative effect. So if you are someone who has been consuming a lot of these foods, so think about your sugar-free gums. Think about high-protein dairy products. I want you to perhaps temporarily avoid them and see how you go. So I'm talking about things like your high-protein milks and puddings, yogurts and desserts, flavored protein shakes, sugar-free gums and lollies, and a lot of your diet sort of sugar-free foods. So artificial sweeteners have actually been a common culprit with a lot of my clients when it comes to the bloat, especially those who are going through a phase, for example, of muscle building, trying to lose body fat, and trying to focus a lot on these diet foods or low-carb foods as part of their diet. Now, the next thing or another very common cause of bloating is actually something called lactose intolerance. Now, lactose is the sugar found in milk and dairy products. To break lactose down, we need an enzyme called lactase. And with lactose intolerance, our bodies do not make enough lactase. So the lactose travels undigested to the large intestine where it's broken down by gut microbes and the malabsorbed lactose causes symptoms such as bloating, abdominal pain, gas, and diarrhea literally within 30 minutes to an hour and a half after ingestion. Now, I myself am lactose intolerant, so I am very familiar with the symptoms and literally without, you know, 45 minutes of consuming something that's really high in lactose can actually give me horrible bloating and I will have to run to the loo. Now, this is where I would say, right, could it be worthwhile looking into how much dairy or lactose containing products that you are consuming and are they a culprit? At the moment, we are spoiled for choice and there is a ton of lactose-free products on the market from lactose-free yogurts to different sort of cheese choices to even a lot of your plant-based options as well. So you are not going to be short of lactose-free products or going lactose-free. And then the final sort of elimination that we can consider is something called FODMAPs. Now, you would have become acquainted with FODMAPs if you've listened to our second episode on cracking the IBS code. But if you haven't, I highly encourage you to go back and do so. But FODMAPs is a term given to a group of, let's say, fermentable sugars that are poorly digested. The term FODMAPs stands for fermentable oligodye and monosaccharides and polyols. Now, examples of the carbohydrates of these fermentable sugars include things like fructose, and that's the sugar found in fruit, fructans, which is found in wheat and lots of different vegetables, such as onion, for example. Lactose is actually known FODMAP or fermentable sugar, which is found in milk. And xylitol is not official sweetener, and that's also an example of a FODMAP. Now, if consumed in large quantities, these FODMAPs are believed to increase the volume of liquid and gas in your small and large intestine, resulting in things like abdominal pain, gas, and bloating. Now, I want to go back to wheat for a second because a lot of people are very quick to jump on the gluten bandwagon, that gluten is causing me to bloat. Actually, about 80% of the time, it won't be gluten. It's the fructans or the FODMAPs found in wheat. So if you had to look at wheat, wheat contains different components. You've got gluten, which is the protein component, fructans, which are the carbohydrate or fermentable sugars that are found in wheat. And about 80% of the time, it's actually the fructans found in wheat that are causing that uncomfortable bloat. Now, 
is it justified that you should go on this FODMAP bandwagon? So the FODMAP process in, you know, includes three phases. The first phase is the elimination phase. And this is where you go through a low FODMAP diet for anywhere between two to six weeks. Then you've got phase two, which is the reintroduction or challenge phase to actually identify which FODMAP groups are causing the problems or how much are you able to tolerate. So what is your threshold before you start experiencing symptoms? And then phase three is liberalization. So bring all the foods back in that do not cause any problems and just being mindful of the ones that do. I'm not sure if actually FODMAPs, you know, going through that process is justified enough just to address bloating. That tends to be, you know, reserved for people with irritable bowel syndrome. But I would say there is a modified, let's say, FODMAP approach that I use with my clients if none of the above. So if, if you know, despite correcting your behaviors, lactose didn't make a difference, the artificial, you know, uh, sweeteners didn't make a difference, then I would say it could be worthwhile jumping on the FODMAP bandwagon. But again, it should only be done under the supervision of a qualified and experienced dietitian. So my friends, I know it's quite hard to sum up or really talk in detail about such a complicated topic in a few minutes. Well, not really a few minutes. You've been listening to me now for, I'd say, 22 minutes, you know, as I am uh, monitoring while I record. But if I had to give you a takeaway message, or let's say my rundown on how to beat the bloat, number one, I want you to rule out any organic causes, including constipation. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to keep a food and symptom diary, and I still want you to note down stress and sleep to identify if you can notice a pattern or trigger. Number three, I want you to correct your eating behaviors and avoid any tight clothing. Number four, avoid fizzy drinks and artificial sweeteners. Then, if that's still not causing you know, a little bit of relief or not giving you some relief, then I would say, hold on, are you seeing a pattern of eating too many gas-causing foods? Then it could be worthwhile temporarily eliminating them. And they would include things like onion, garlic, artichokes, asparagus, apples, beans, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, pears, and pear juice. I'm trying to think if I've forgotten anything. Yeah, these tend to be the, the most common ones. So think of them as your fart foods. So... If the first few points do not offer any relief, you can consider a temporary elimination of lactose and see if that resolves the bloat. And then if lactose is not the trigger and not the culprit, then we can potentially look at a less restrictive version of the low FODMAP diet. So that will be a modified low FODMAP diet for about two weeks. And then there's a whole other area of looking at certain remedies. Now, I know there's this whole... I'm not going to call it obsession, but one of the most common questions that I get is, can I take a probiotic supplement and can it be used to help me sort of resolve my bloating? The simple answer is actually not always, because I know it seems like an attractive option and I'm sure you've come across it and you've been sold some sort of probiotic that will help you beat the bloat, but it is actually way more complex than, than just taking any sort of probiotic supplement. So. The, the thing is, when we're looking at how probiotics help us address the bloat or the mechanics on how this is achieved, we really still don't know the exact ways. So 
when it comes to probiotics, I always say I want to treat them like medication. So you need to actually know, you know, what sort of strain of probiotic you need to use to address the problem. And the strains that have been researched and studied, but again, I highly encourage you to seek professional guidance first before jumping on any probiotic bandwagon. But the, the, let's say the top three probiotic strains that perhaps have been known to help alleviate the bloat are things like Lactobacillus acidophilus, NCFM, Bifidobacterium lactis, BIO7, Lactobacillus plantarum, LP299V. Now, these strains seem to pull the brakes on gas production. Perhaps, you know, they are restoring the balance of your gut microbiome to a healthier one, reducing gas-producing bacterial species, or transforming how these, you know, microbes function. So I would definitely encourage you to work with your health professional first to make sure that you've chosen the right strain, and you will need to set A, the dosage, and B, the period of time. The other common, let's say, alternative, I'm not going to call it alternative option to to address bloating, but I'm sure you might have tried activated charcoal. It is a very, very popular remedy to beat the bloat that's made its rounds across social media and I'm sure all the other sort of internet platforms out there. So if you're not familiar with what activated charcoal is, it is a type of charcoal that's been treated with heat to make it more porous. And now this form makes it more effective in trapping gas, subsequently alleviating the bloat. It is sold in supplement form as well as powders and has been added to lots of, you know, juice cleanses. But again, the research there is really not conclusive and you will need to use it with guidance given the side effects that can come with it. And they can include things like vomiting, constipation, and black poo. So I do know that a lot of gastroenterologists do recommend some forms of activated charcoal. But again, before jumping on that bandwagon, discuss that with your health professional to see what the best approach would be there for you. So that, my friends, I wanted to wrap up my first solo episode. And I really look forward to welcoming you back on here. And hopefully that will be available to have a chat to you all at our next chat. So look after yourselves and after your guts, and I'll see you on here again next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.